0: Section six of Reflections on the Revolution in France. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reflections on the Revolution in France, and on the proceedings in certain societies in London relative to that event, in a letter intended to have been sent to a gentleman in Paris, seventeen ninety, by Edmund Burke. Section six if this be your actual situation compared to the situation to which you were called as it were by the voice of god and man i cannot find it in my heart to congratulate you on the choice you have made or the success which has attended your endeavors i can as little recommend to any other nation a conduct grounded on such principles and productive of such effects that i must leave to those who can see further into your affairs than i am able to do and who best know how far your actions are favorable to their designs. The gentlemen of the Revolution Society, who were so early in their congratulations, appear to be strongly of opinion that there is some scheme of politics relative to this country in which your proceedings may in some way be useful. For your Dr. Price, who seems to have speculated himself into no small degree of fervor upon this subject, addresses his auditors in the following very remarkable words. I cannot conclude without recalling particularly to your recollection a consideration which I have more than once alluded to, and which probably your thoughts have been all along anticipating, a consideration with which my mind is impressed more than can express. I mean the consideration of the favorableness of the present times to all exertions in the cause of liberty." It is plain that the mind of this political preacher was at the time big with some extraordinary design, and it is very probable that the thoughts of his audience, who understood him better than I do, did all along run before him in his reflection, and in the whole train of consequences to which it led. Before I read that sermon, I really thought I had lived in a free country, and it was an error I cherished, because it gave me a greater liking to the country I lived in. I was, indeed, aware that a jealous, ever-waking vigilance to guard the treasure of our liberty not only from invasion, but from decay and corruption, was our best wisdom and our first duty. However, I considered that treasure rather as a possession to be secured than as a prize to be contended for. I did not discern how the present time came to be so very favorable to all exertions in the cause of freedom. The present time differs from any other only by the circumstance of what is doing in France. If the example of that nation is to have an influence on this, I can easily conceive why some of their proceedings, which have an unpleasant aspect and are not quite reconcilable to humanity, generosity, good faith, and justice, are palliated with so much milky good nature towards the actors and borne with so much heroic fortitude towards the sufferers it is certainly not prudent to discredit the authority of an example we mean to follow but allowing this we are led to a very natural question what is that cause of liberty and what are those exertions in its favor to which the example of france is so singularly auspicious is our monarchy to be annihilated with all the laws all the tribunals and all the ancient corporations of the kingdom is every landmark of the country to be done away in favor of a geometrical and arithmetical constitution is the house of lords to be voted useless is episcopacy to be abolished are the church lands to be sold to jews and jobbers or given to bribe new invented municipal republics into a participation in sacrilege are all the taxes to be voted grievances and the revenue reduced to a patriotic contribution or patriotic presence Are silver shoe-buckles to be substituted in the place of the land tax and the malt tax for the support of the naval strength of this kingdom? Are all orders, ranks, and distinctions to be confounded, that out of universal anarchy, joined to national bankruptcy, three or four thousand democracies should be formed into 83, and that they may all, by some sort of unknown attractive power, be organized into one, for this great end is the army to be seduced from its discipline and its fidelity first by every kind of debauchery and then by the terrible precedent of a donative in the increase of pay are the curates to be seduced from their bishops by holding out to them the delusive hope of a dole out of the spoils of their own order are the citizens of london to be drawn from their allegiance by feeding them at the expense of their fellow subjects is a compulsory paper currency to be substituted in the place of the legal coin of this kingdom? Is what remains of the plundered stock of public revenue to be employed in the wild project of maintaining two armies to watch over and to fight with each other? If these are the ends and means of the Revolution Society, I admit they are well assorted, and France may furnish them for both, with precedence in point. I see that your example is held out to shame us i know that we are supposed a dull sluggish race rendered passive by finding our situation tolerable and prevented by a mediocrity of freedom from ever attaining to its full perfection your leaders in france began by affecting to admire almost to adore the british constitution but as they advanced they came to look upon it with a sovereign contempt the friends of your national assembly amongst us have full as mean an opinion of what was formerly thought the glory of their country the revolution society has discovered that the english nation is not free they are convinced that the inequality in our representation is a defect in our constitution so gross and palpable as to make it excellent chiefly in form and theory that a representation in the legislature of a kingdom is not only the basis of all constitutional liberty in it but of all legitimate government that without it a government is nothing but a usurpation that when the representation is partial, the kingdom possesses liberty only partially. And if extremely partial, it gives only a semblance. And if not only extremely partial, but corruptly chosen, it becomes a nuisance. Dr. Price considers this inadequacy of representation as our fundamental grievance, and though, as to the corruption of this semblance of representation, he hopes it has not yet arrived to its full perfection of depravity, He fears that nothing will be done towards gaining for us this essential blessing, until some great abuse of power again provokes our resentment, or some great calamity again alarms our fears, or perhaps till the acquisition of a pure and equal representation by other countries, whilst we are mocked with the shadow, kindles our shame. To this he subjoins a note in these words. A representation chosen chiefly by the treasury, and a few thousands of the dregs of the people, who are generally paid for their votes. Unquote. You will smile here at the consistency of those democratists who, when they are not on their guard, treat the humbler part of the community with the greatest contempt, whilst at the same time they pretend to make them the depositories of all power. It would require a long discourse to point out to you the many fallacies that lurk in the generality and equivocal nature of the terms inadequate representation. I shall only say here, in justice to that old-fashioned constitution, under which we have long prospered, that our representation has been found perfectly adequate to all the purposes for which a representation of the people can be desired or devised. I defy the enemies of our constitution to show the contrary. To detail the particulars in which it is found so well to promote its ends, would demand a treatise on our practical constitution i state here the doctrine of the revolutionists only that you and others may see what an opinion these gentlemen entertain of the constitution of their country and why they seem to think that some great abuse of power or some great calamity as giving a chance for the blessing of a constitution according to their ideas would be much palliated to their feelings you see why they are so much enamoured of your fair and equal representation which being once obtained, the same effects might follow. You see they consider our house of commons as only a semblance, a form, a theory, a shadow, a mockery, perhaps a nuisance. These gentlemen value themselves on being systematic, and not without reason. They must therefore look on this gross and palpable defect of representation, this fundamental grievance, so they call it, as a thing not only vicious in itself, but as rendering our whole government absolutely illegitimate and not at all better than a downright usurpation. Another revolution to get rid of this illegitimate and usurped government would, of course, be perfectly justifiable if not absolutely necessary. Indeed, their principle, if you observe it with any attention, goes much further than to an alteration in the election of the House of Commons for if popular representation or choice is necessary to the legitimacy of all government the house of lords is at one stroke bastardized and corrupted in blood that house is no representative of the people at all even in semblance or in form the case of the crown is altogether as bad in vain the crown may endeavor to screen itself against these gentlemen by the authority of the establishment made on the revolution The revolution, which is resorted to for a title on their system, wants a title itself. The revolution is built, according to their theory, upon a basis not more solid than our present formalities, as it was made by a house of lords not representing anyone but themselves, and by a house of commons exactly such as the present, that is, as they term it, by a mere shadow and mockery of representation. Something they must destroy or they seem to themselves to exist for no purpose. One set is for destroying the civil power through the ecclesiastical, another for demolishing the ecclesiastic through the civil. They are aware that the worst consequences might happen to the public in accomplishing this double ruin of church and state, but they are so heated with their theories that they give more than hints that this ruin, with all the mischiefs that must lead to it and attend it, and which to themselves appear quite certain, would not be unacceptable to them, or very remote from their wishes. A man amongst them of great authority, and certainly of great talents, speaking of a supposed alliance between church and state, says perhaps we must wait for the fall of the civil powers before this most unnatural alliance be broken. Calamitous, no doubt, will that time be. But what convulsion in the political world ought to be a subject of lamentation? if it be attended with so desirable an effect you see with what a steady eye these gentlemen are prepared to view the greatest calamities which can befall their country it is no wonder therefore that with these ideas of everything in their constitution and government at home either in church or state as illegitimate and usurped or at best as a vain mockery they look abroad with an eager and passionate enthusiasm whilst they are possessed by these notions it is vain to talk to them of the practice of their ancestors the fundamental laws of their country the fixed form of a constitution whose merits are confirmed by the solid test of long experience and an increasing public strength and national prosperity they despise experience as the wisdom of unlettered men and as for the rest they have wrought underground a mine that will blow up at one grand explosion all examples of antiquity all precedents charters and acts of Parliament. They have the rights of men. Against these there can be no prescription. Against these no argument is binding. These admit no temperament and no compromise. Anything withheld from their full demand is so much of fraud and injustice. Against these their rights of men let no government look for security in the length of its continuance or in the justice and lenity of its administration. The objections of these speculatists if its forms do not quadrate with their theories are as valid against such an old and beneficent government as against the most violent tyranny or the greenest usurpation they are always at issue with governments not on a question of abuse but a question of competency and a question of title i have nothing to say to the clumsy subtlety of their political metaphysics let them be their amusement in the schools illa se jactet in aula aeolus et clauso ventorum carcere regnet but let them not break prison to burst like a levanter to sweep the earth with their hurricane and to break up the fountains of the great deep to overwhelm us far am i from denying in theory full as far is my heart from withholding in practice if i were of power to give or to withhold the real rights of men In denying their false claims of right, I do not mean to injure those which are real, and are such as their pretended rights would totally destroy. If civil society be made for the advantage of man, all the advantages for which it is made become his right. It is an institution of beneficence, and law itself is only beneficence acting by a rule. Men have a right to live by that rule. They have a right to justice, as between their fellows, whether their fellows are in politic function or in ordinary occupation they have a right to the fruits of their industry and to the means of making their industry fruitful they have a right to the acquisitions of their parents to the nourishment and improvement of their offspring to instruction in life and to consolation in death whatever each man can separately do without trespassing upon others he has a right to do for himself and he has a right to a fair portion of all which society, with all its combinations of skill and force, can do in his favor. In this partnership, all men have equal rights, but not to equal things. He that has but five shillings in the partnership has as good a right to it as he that has five hundred pounds has to his larger proportion, but he has not a right to an equal dividend in the product of the joint stock. And as to the share of power, authority, and direction which each individual ought to have in the management of the state, that I must deny to be amongst the direct original rights of man in civil society, for I have in my contemplation the civil social man and no other. It is a thing to be settled by convention. If civil society be the offspring of convention, that convention must be its law. That convention must limit and modify all the descriptions of constitution which are formed under it. Every sort of legislative, judicial, or executory power are its creatures. They can have no being in any other state of things. And how can any man claim, under the conventions of civil society, rights which do not so much as suppose its existence, rights which are absolutely repugnant to it? One of the first motives to civil society, and which becomes one of its fundamental rules, is that no man should be judge in his own cause. By this each person has at once divested himself of the first fundamental right of uncovenanted man. That is, to judge for himself and to assert his own cause. He abdicates all right to be his own governor. He inclusively, in a great measure, abandons the right of self-defense, The first law of nature men cannot enjoy the rights of an uncivil and of a civil state together that he may obtain justice he gives up his right of determining what it is in points the most essential to him that he may secure some liberty he makes a surrender in trust of the whole of it government is not made in virtue of natural rights which may and do exist in total independence of it and exist in much greater clearness and in a much greater degree, of abstract perfection. But their abstract perfection is their practical defect. By having a right to everything, they want everything. Government is a contrivance of human wisdom to provide for human wants. Men have a right that these wants should be provided for by this wisdom. Among these wants is to be reckoned the want, out of civil society, of a sufficient restraint upon their passions. Society requires not only that the passions of individuals should be subjected, but that even in the mass and body, as well as in the individuals, the inclinations of men should frequently be thwarted, their will controlled, and their passions brought into subjection. This can only be done by a power out of themselves, and not, in the exercise of its function, subject to that will and to those passions, which it is its office to bridle and subdue, In this sense, the restraints on men, as well as their liberties, are to be reckoned among their rights. But as the liberties and restrictions vary with times and circumstances, and admit of infinite modifications, they cannot be settled upon any abstract rule, and nothing is so foolish as to discuss them upon that principle. The moment you abate anything from the full rights of men, each to govern himself, and suffer any artificial positive limitation upon those rights, from that moment the whole organization of government becomes a consideration of convenience. This it is which makes the constitution of a state and the due distribution of its powers a matter of the most delicate and complicated skill. It requires a deep knowledge of human nature and human necessities, and of the things which facilitate or obstruct the various ends which are to be pursued by the mechanism of civil institutions. The state is to have recruits to its strength and remedies to its distempers. What is the use of discussing a man's abstract right to food or medicine? The question is upon the method of procuring and administering them. In that deliberation, I shall always advise to call in the aid of the farmer and the physician, rather than the professor of metaphysics. The science of constructing a commonwealth, or renovating it, or reforming it, is like every other experimental science, not to be taught a priori. Nor is it a short experience that can instruct us in that practical science, because the real effects of moral causes are not always immediate, but that which in the first instance is prejudicial may be excellent in its remoter operation, and its excellence may arise even from the ill effects it produces in the beginning. The reverse also happens, and very plausible schemes with very pleasing commencements have often shameful and lamentable conclusions. In states there are often some obscure and almost latent causes, things which appear at first view of little moment, on which a very great part of its prosperity or adversity may most essentially depend. The science of government being, therefore, so practical in itself and intended for such practical purposes— a matter which requires experience, and even more experience than any person can gain in his whole life, however sagacious and observing he may be, it is with infinite caution that any man ought to venture upon pulling down an edifice which has answered in any tolerable degree for ages the common purposes of society, or on building it up again without having models and patterns of approved utility before his eyes. These metaphysic rites entering into common life like rays of light which pierce into a dense medium, are, by the laws of nature, refracted from their straight line. Indeed, in the gross and complicated mass of human passions and concerns, the primitive rights of men undergo such a variety of refractions and reflections that it becomes absurd to talk of them as if they continued in the simplicity of their original direction. The nature of man is intricate. The objects of society are of the greatest possible complexity, and therefore no simple disposition or direction of power can be suitable either to man's nature or to the quality of his affairs. When I hear the simplicity of contrivance aimed at and boasted of in any new political constitutions, I am at no loss to decide that the artificers are grossly ignorant of their trade or totally negligent of their duty the simple governments are fundamentally defective to say no worse of them if you were to contemplate society in but one point of view all these simple modes of polity are infinitely captivating in effect each would answer its single end much more perfectly than the more complex is able to attain all its complex purposes but it is better that the whole should be imperfectly and anomalously answered than that while some parts are provided for with great exactness Others might be totally neglected, or perhaps materially injured, by the overcare of a favorite member. The pretended rights of these theorists are all extremes, and in proportion as they are metaphysically true, they are morally and politically false. The rights of men are in a sort of middle, incapable of definition, but not impossible to be discerned. The rights of men in governments are their advantages and these are often in balances between differences of good, in compromises sometimes between good and evil, and sometimes between evil and evil. Political reason is a computing principle, adding, subtracting, multiplying, and dividing, morally and not metaphysically or mathematically, true moral denominations. By these theorists, the right of the people is almost always sophistically confounded with their power, The body of the community, whenever it can come to act, can meet with no effectual resistance. But till power and right are the same, the whole body of them has no right inconsistent with virtue. And the first of all virtues, prudence. Men have no right to what is not reasonable, and to what is not for their benefit. For though a pleasant writer said, Lysiat perere poetis, when one of them, in cold blood, is said to have leaped into the flames of a volcanic revolution, ardentum frigidus aetinum insiluit. I consider such a frolic rather as an unjustifiable poetic license than as one of the franchises of Parnassus. And whether he were poet, or divine, or politician, that chose to exercise this kind of right, I think that more wise, because more charitable, thoughts, would urge me rather to save the man than to preserve his brazen slippers as the monuments of his folly. End of section 6